0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano 77 WABC your hands, uh, by the way, there's a wonderful scene in one of the great Mel Brooks films of all time, Spaceballs, um, that has this song in it, and it features John Candy as Barf, it's very funny, and I was thinking of that movie Spaceballs today, I almost pulled the audio from the scene, because there's a very funny joke towards the end of that picture uh, that has to do with the planet Pluto, very funny, and it's very punny fact uh, maybe i 'll link to it in the facebook group. Um, just go on to uh, facebook dot com slash morano fan and uh, you can join the facebook group and i will i 'll link to it there meantime I am really pleased to be joined live i believe from Russia by uh Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is uh, an interesting guy. He is a Moscow-based international affairs and security analyst and a former contributing political analyst at RT. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the radio.
1: Frank, thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor and a pleasure to be on the Midnight Hour.
0: Uh so how you you're you're American obviously, right Mark?
1: Um I uh, have immigrated to Russia so technically I guess I'm a dual citizen.
0: Okay so uh, but you were born here in the United States.
1: Sure and, I served in the uh, military for 6 years in uh, nuclear engineering. And how
0: did you how did you end up in Russia?
1: Um well I do have Russian roots uh, my family is kind of a mixed Slavic uh, blood uh, some Russian some Slovak uh, I think there's one Pole in there. Um, so there's that, uh, but, uh, I had been out of the Navy for a few years and I was, uh, working in Boston, uh, doing some engineering and I, uh, met my wife at a nightclub there and, uh, she's from Crimea, uh, from Russia, uh, formerly Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I followed her back to Moscow. She was, uh, doing her, um, MBA at Harvard and, um, we met and I followed her back uh, when she was finished, and I've uh, been here more or less ever since.
0: How do you make a living out there?
1: Uh, I teach. Uh, I, I've uh, taught at uh, Moscow State University. Um, uh, after uh, my uh, military career, I went back to school and did uh, at in London for a few years, actually, in five years, and did my postgraduate in uh, international. Uh, relations theory and strategic studies. Uh, So um, I've taught at Moscow State University. I've taught a few different places in Moscow. uh, But I also do some geopolitical risk consulting and a lot of media work.
0: Now, um, one of the concerns that listeners would raise when I would uh, talk with anybody in Russia, be they Russian citizens, American citizens, this was even before the the skirmish with Ukraine, the war with Ukraine, but it has been underscored multiple times since this uh, this war with Ukraine began. Is a lot of people basically say, listeners of mine, say you can't believe anything that folks who are in Russia are saying about what's actually happening because they're not in a position to speak freely. Now, let me ask you that, uh, Mark, are you are you being prohibited? from speaking freely about what's happening there, either to me or in general?
1: Yes, actually, Boris Badenov is right behind me with a gun to my head right now. Uh, and I mean, this is absurd. I mean, there are Russians who say the same thing about any American and you can't trust anything they say and they don't have any uh, agency in their media and it's all controlled by six giant corporations who are in league with the government and conspiracy theory and tinfoil house at the door. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, I certainly I have uh, regularly uh, criticized the Russian government very loudly on a number of things. They're probably not the number of things that someone who uh, is a say a Western liberal would criticize the Russian government for. Uh, But uh, I speak my mind and I use uh, Russian media, whether private or state, as my own platform uh, whenever I feel the need. And I think uh, I would never claim to be objective on the situation in Ukraine because my wife is from Crimea right? Uh, my family, I have family in Simferopol right now. And we also have family all across East Ukraine and Donbass and Kharkov and Odessa. And uh there the people of East Ukraine, I think, are a voice that has been deliberately expunged from the Western media because their continued existence does not fit the narrative that uh, the US government would like to tell you. Uh, but you know, Go figure! Half the people of Ukraine weren't happy when their government was overthrown in 2014, with uh, open U.S. support uh, and Victoria Newland's cookies. And uh, you know they've been fighting a war for the last eight years. Russia, you know, just intervened in that uh, when Kiev. Refused the U.S.-backed regime in Kiev refused uh, to fulfill the Minsk Accords that they had agreed to. Okay, Mark, uh, let
0: me let me get you to slow ago. down here because yep. a, a lot of a lot. Of, I try to follow this stuff pretty closely, but a lot of our listeners they're fed a steady diet of what's on the mainstream news and. That differs greatly from the reality that you're describing. Now, the the conventional narrative of what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and has been happening for the last few months is something pretty close to uh, Vladimir Putin is a uh, bloodthirsty James Bond style villain who uh, invaded a neighboring sovereign country that didn't attack him, that was just sitting there minding their own business, and here comes Vladimir Putin not only to invade this country like a modern-day Hitler, but to do so in a particularly bloodthirsty manner. Where do, does reality, in your view, differ from this this narrative that uh, both mainstream, left-wing news outlets and right-wing news outlets are selling the public on?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just about everywhere. I mean, first of all, uh, perspective from here is that Ukraine has not had been a sovereign country since its government was overthrown in 2014. Certainly, that's the way the people of East Ukraine feel. Uh, and polls in Ukraine, you know, conducted in the last few years show that they feel that their government, that they had democratically elected, was overthrown in a violent and unconstitutional U.S.-backed insurrection. Uh, I mean, if people think January the sixth, when when a bunch of yahoos, uh, you know, walk past largely passive security into the Capitol building, Uh, uh, took some selfies in the Capitol building and collected a a few uh, souvenirs unlawfully and then went home. If that was an insurrection, I get news for you, Uh, because what happened uh, in Kiev with dozens of police officers being killed, hundreds injured and endless waves, of being burnt alive by molotov cocktails and and so forth and which isn't to say that this had no support it had support of almost half the country but the other half disagreed with it and that led to eight years of conflict where the u.s backed regime in kiev was killing its own people in east ukraine shelling them every day for eight years um uh, of course those people are dismissed they they don't matter those were that reframed as pro Russian separatists and then denied all human agency or uh, uh, concern or, or anything, but the truth is in the conflict right now, Russia intervened in a conflict that had been going on in Ukraine for eight years, and there are ten there are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict. there are tens of thousands of East Ukrainians fighting with uh, uh, Russian forces against a U.S.-backed regime in Kiev. This is both a civil conflict, a proxy conflict, and uh, probably a nascent World War III.
0: Um, In your view, does Vladimir Putin deserve any of the blame for what's happening here?
1: Sure. I think he should have – I've said this since 2014 when he let the government of his neighbor be overthrown unlawfully, unconstitutionally when the president was begging for Russian intervention at the time and uh, he was too concerned with his prestige project of an Olympics. At the time, uh, to do anything about it, to help to support a government that was under the pressure from uh, you know, a lot of extremists, a lot of normal people, but uh, also backed openly by foreign powers, he should have done something then. And the fact that he didn't and allowed himself to be lulled into thinking that, that this um, farce in Kiev would co- eventually collapse under its own weight. When it has been propped up with an IB of tens of billions of dollars of Western taxpayers' money for the last eight years, you know I, I blame him. Uh, I, 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 the fact that he has to go in now uh, with military force to, uh, you know, on one hand protect the people of East Ukraine, on the other hand to uh, protect Russian national interests of of uh, NATO bases uh, being built uh, in a country next door. Um, you know i I blame him for that uh he he should have acted back then when there was no Ukrainian military that was responding to to uh, the new regime in
0: kiev, so uh, Putin's they, they blame were
1: deserting in tens of thousands
0: in your view uh Putin's blame is due to. Not intervening earlier when the overthrow yes. of Yanukovych uh, was that that 's what it 's limited to, not necessarily anything related to this Russian invasion or incursion of the military into ukraine
1: well, the first few weeks uh, of the intervention the first two or three weeks was a bit of a feces show i, I don 't think there 's mm-hmm. any question there uh, whether the you know the actual plan uh, you know, you have to assume it came from the Russian General Staff, from uh, from um, Garasimov and, and from the Defense Minister Shoigu. Uh, I don't know how involved Putin was, but he had to give the okay on it. And I mean, any logical, I mean. From the Russian government's perspective, they're not at war with the Ukrainian people. Again, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting with them. They're fighting a U.S.-backed regime in Kiev that seized power in 2014. The logical thing would be a decapitation strike that took out the regime in Kiev quickly without doing a lot of damage in the country. And I said right away to my wife, well, they better have a good plan for a decapitation strike or this is going to be long and ugly. Well, they had a plan. It wasn't a good one. It strung out a lot of Russian forces and got a, a, a lot of Russian and Ukrainian boys killed needlessly and has ever since. Uh but that that was uh, a bad show. That was a bad plan. Mm. Uh and it 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 got uh it, I I think a lot of it was due to failed intelligence more than than the military. Um I think they uh had people in Ukraine, uh, within the regime, and out that were supposed to rise up and uh, they didn't and I think the CIA had clearly uh compromised that already and uh, it 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 got it turned into the the long and ugly conflict instead
0: uh, It was reported yesterday in a lot of Western media outlets that Russia appears to have been have uh, defaulted on its debt. For the first time since 1918, um, this is after a whole bunch of American sanctions, a whole bunch of Western sanctions. Uh, one, what do you know about the reports of a Russian debt default? And two, yeah. how have these sanctions on Russia worked out for the Russian economy and from what you know of on the economy for the countries that are instituting those sanctions?
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, first of all, the idea that Russia – I mean this is a forced default, quote-unquote. Russia has plenty of money. Uh, First of all, the West – uh, the U.S. in particular, but uh, Brussels as well, they stole 600 billion dollars from the Russian government. Uh, you know that was uh, in Western banks. Um, uh, second of all, Russia still has hundreds of billions of dollars of savings, right? Unlike the United States, which say has 30 trillion dollars of debt, Russia runs a, a tight fiscal ship and has been for the last. Uh, Twenty some years, they've got plenty of money. In fact, they've got more money now than they did at the beginning of the intervention because of the increase in the price of oil, of gas, of wheat, of metals, of of all these commodities uh, that uh, you know is blowback from the Western sanctions. But this comes from the U.S. uh, and uh, you know its client states in the EU. They have weaponized their control of the global uh, financial system, and they are. physically preventing Russia from completing the transaction to pay the debt uh, you know their nominal debt that they have for credit purposes uh, that is is just you know it's it's a few tens of millions of dollars which you know to governments like this is it's nothing, uh, but it's it's like being you're on your way to the bank and you are physically held up and not allowed to deposit your money in the bank. That's that that's what it's like. It has nothing to do with with the Russian you know government not being able to pay its debts. They are being prevented, and they've actually paid them with rubles. Uh, and uh, right now, the ruble is the, the world's best performing currency, um, <laughs> uh, you know, despite what Jen Psaki told us about the ruble being destroyed. Actually, it's stronger now than it was significantly stronger now than it was before the intervention in February. Um, but. You know the u s is is taking the opportunity that oh, it should have been paid in dollars, and if it wasn't paid in dollars, it doesn't count, and russia's in default it's not, and no one pays that any serious. it's just another p r move in an info war as to the war of the sanctions. Now it would be wrong to say that uh, the sanctions haven't had any effect on the Russian economy, but I guarantee you that for the moment. They have affected the lives of taxpayers in the U.S. and Europe negatively more than they have the average Russian. Uh, how much are you paying for gasoline at the pump oh, right uh, now? Oh, $5. Yeah, $5. Yeah, it's about $2 there. Must be nice. Must be nice. Send us
0: some. Um, we're yeah. tra- if People are just – No. We're, tra- <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Mark Sloboda. Uh, he, live from Moscow. Um. One of the things that we see trumpeted on the news, and I just saw it on one of the news uh, channels on one of the TV screens here at the radio station, is a lot of attention paid to the brutality in which the Russians are handling this military operation. There was a report just yesterday that there was a Russian missile strike at a shopping mall very early on. There was a lot of attention paid to a maternity ward that was uh, that was that was destroyed Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, called the Russian government the largest terrorist organization in the world just a couple of days ago in a speech uh, to the world. As, As you see it, is the Russian military being particularly brutal in their treatment and their execution of this war?
1: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, this is ridiculous black PR disinformation. It's a war, right? Uh, whether we're talking, you know, the U.S. destruction of, of Fallujah and uh, Raqqa in uh, its invasions of Iraq and Syria, you know, the shock and awe campaigns, um, it's a war and innocent civilians get killed as collateral damage, no matter what. And it's always a tragedy and it, it always happens regardless. Um you know past the pundit talking heads if you talk to real american uh russian military experts like uh Michael Kaufman at the center uh uh for new american security and he's also uh, uh the head of Russia analysis uh at the uh, uh, navy's military assessment board um, he points out You know, grudgingly that that Russia actually, particularly in the beginning of the conflict, really went out of their way to the detriment of their own forces to minimize casualties as much as possible. And they're still doing that. But the defense that the Kiev regime is fighting using residential buildings as firing points and headquarters and, you know, using shopping centers as as, uh, you know, storage for missiles and artillery rounds and so on. uh, And then then crying wolf and and thousands dead. Right. Okay, uh, that didn't happen. Right. It's as real as the ghost of Kiev or the Snake Island hoax, or the bombing of Baba Yar, or the bombing of the Chernobyl nuclear plant. There has been so much disinformation out of the regime in Kiev, and it's part of their info war. And there's no question, they're winning the info war, at least on Western social media and and media. Um, That's, of course, their own playground. But yeah, you know, they they have handily winning it there in their echo chamber. Uh, But that, you know, doesn't change the reality on the ground. And if you take a look at the civilian casualties uh, for the scale of the conflict that's happening uh, in Ukraine right now and compare it to civil, civilian casualties in the relatively lower intensity U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, it comes out quite favorable.
0: You know, it's funny the uh, I have been saying for a while that uh, I I think it would be wise for America to try to facilitate a diplomatic end to this dispute between Russia and Ukraine instead of bragging about how American officials are not talking to their Russian counterparts in those same jobs. And when I've said that a couple of times on the air, uh, I've been accused of, um, you know, uh, Chamberlain-style appeasement, and um, a couple of things have happened since those early appeasement accusations were thrown at me and to other guests that have been on this show. One is Vladimir Zelensky has come out and said that we're they're losing between 50 and 200 Ukrainians every single day. As, oh well, no!
1: They've upped it. They've upped it since he first said that. It, Actually, they're saying now between two hundred and five hundred are dying every day. Well, th- that's precisely what I was going to say. So, injured. L-
0: let's yeah. say, let's say on the conservative end, it's only two hundred Ukrainians that are dying every day uh, for, as this war continues. Uh, wa- I just don't see who's being helped by this refusal by Washington to engage in diplomacy. Then we see in Politico Europe, they reported a day and a half ago that Boris Johnson told Emmanuel Macron that a move, meaning settling the war in Ukraine, would, quote, give Putin license to manipulate both sovereign countries and international markets In perpetuity. Uh, Give me what you make of the appeasement argument and of what Johnson told Macron at the uh, G7.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, it's this kind of the gutter of. journalism and politics that you know, everything inevitably gets referred to world war Two. you know it's it's i think they believe they call it godwin's law don't you i mean it's the right. end of of any rational discussion of, of of anything uh to you know to reduce everything to, to hitler you know everything i everyone i disagree with is hitler and every situation is comparable to that okay uh you know that's ridiculous and pointless uh it no more so than the u.s invasion of iraq or libya or syria or serbia or so on was was hitler um so um as towards the lack of u.s diplomacy uh or you know british diplomacy or anything to end the conflict you're presuming that they want to end the conflict and that they want uh, to save ukrainian lives that they they're concerned about that the opposite is true. All right. Um, I mean, and Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Biden's Secretary of Defense, has been very open about part of that, saying that their goal right now is to weaken Russia, right? The longer the conflict goes on, you know, they view this as giving Russia their own Vietnam or their own Afghanistan, although they've been, been involved in an Afghanistan fighting U.S.-backed jihadis before, of course, as the Soviet Union. Uh, but. Um, there's a bit more to it than that. Ukraine is a national identity divided country along eastern and western li- lines where they disagree about what it means to be Ukrainian. And western Ukrainians, because of their history, their culture, right, their their collaboration with Nazi Germany and World War II, they're, 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 they weren't part of Ukraine for centuries there. They look either to the west or to their own nationalist elements, and they hate Russians, in East Ukraine, it's very different. They're Russian speaking, and they largely look at Russians as either part of the literally part of our family or, you know, a brother people next door. And Ukraine has had a divided politics since nineteen ninety two that's been balanced internally and externally by staying neutral. And until two thousand fourteen, Ukraine had a constitution that that you know they had to be neutral. That was part of their constitution. They weren't allowed to join any outside military blocs and so forth. And the whole events of 2014 and since has been tried to force the national identity conception and politics of West Ukraine on the east of the country by force. And what the U.S. is hoping that every Ukrainian that dies in combat with Russia – has a family that then hates russia forever no matter you know what side of that line they were on to begin with and you have to remember that ukraine has an entirely conscript army men between the ages of 16 and 60 are literally not allowed to leave the country they all have to register for waves of forced conscription to go to the front to go to the eastern front you know if you will uh but um you know when they die there Their families, you know, rightfully, uh, you know, feel aggrieved. And they're hoping that enough Ukrainians Mm -hmm. die, that that Ukraine then, uh, you know, permanently shifts – uh, even in the east of the country, its feelings towards Russia. Mark, so the more Ukrainians I, that die, it's better.
0: I, I have to have you back because there, there's pages of stuff that I want to get into with you that I haven't. But one last subject that I want to bring to your attention is it was it was talked about by Janet Yellen, the American Secretary of the Treasury, a couple of days ago. And it was seems to have been codified in Germany at the G7 meeting. Evidently, the G7 is moving towards capping what price... Uh, the Russians can sell oil on. He was Janet Yellen a couple of days ago.
2: <laughs> During our visit, we've also discussed how the United States and Canada can continue to stand united on measures to end Russia's brutal war against Ukraine and mitigate its impacts around the world and at home, including higher energy costs. Russia's war demonstrates that while we need to boost production of fossil fuels in the short term. It is strongly in our interest to adopt energy technologies that break our dependence over the long term. We are talking about price caps or a price exception that would enhance and strengthen recent and proposed energy restrictions by Europe, the United States, the U.K., and others that would push down the price of Russian oil and depress Putin's revenues While allowing more oil supply to reach the global market.
0: Very quickly, Mark, let me get you to comment on uh, what, what Janet Yellen is saying there and this plan for price caps on Russian oil.
1: Yeah, this is ridiculous hubris. Does Janet Yellen think she's going to tell China and India, you should not pay more for this than this for Russian oil that you're buying? I mean, that's absurd. (laughs) The US doesn't control uh, the world. It certainly doesn't control China. It doesn't control India. It doesn't control the global market for oil. All of their sanctions have only risen the price of oil. Uh, the, The attempt of the EU to survive without Russian oil and gas has risen the price of both around the world. Russia sells a little less and makes more money because the price of what mm. it does sell, increasing to China and India, is that much higher. It's, it's a, a ridiculous hubris. It's a ridiculous plan. It will have just as, as much catastrophic effect uh, and the embarrassing effect for the U.S. as the previous rounds of sanctions. I mean, when, when have sanctions ever done anything? I'm, Mark, I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, no,
0: that's, that's for sure. Mark, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I uh, hope we can talk again soon. Thank you for the time.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. If you want to comment, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.